0: The uh, reading this afternoon comes from John 20. I've got it up there, good. 1 to 31. Early on in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, "Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, "I have seen the Lord." And she told them that he, she had seen all that she, and she told them that he had said these things to her. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well,
1: um, what a wonderful chapter. Thanks, Richard, for that long reading, but exciting reading. Uh, it's very different from where we ended last week. Where last week we ended the chapter with Jesus dead and buried in a tomb. Death, we are told, is unavoidable. There's only two things that are unavoidable or are certain death and taxes. Woody Allen, the comedian, was famously asked once about death, and he said, I intend to live forever. And so far, so good. Good luck with that, Woody. About 18 months ago, I don't know if any of you have heard of this, about 18 months ago in the southern New South Wales town of Holbrook, a company called Southern uh, Cryogenics opened a facility where people can have their bodies kept frozen until medical science discovers a cure for whatever has killed them. And then they'll be thawed out, cured, and sent back to live again. Well, I've got some good news and some bad news for those people, if if they could hear me. And the good news is there may well be discoveries that could cure what what they died from. The bad news is that even if it was possible to thaw them out and breathe life back into their frozen, lifeless corpses, they would still die. All that would have happened is that their death would have been postponed. People are brought back to life every day. In hospitals, they use electric shock treatments. People use CPR and mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Even in the Bible, two weeks before this, Lazarus was raised from the dead. But none of them are raised to eternal life. No one's resuscitated to eternal life. All of them are still going to die. What we are reading about and hearing the witnesses attest to here is that Jesus rose from the dead. To eternal life conquering death. If this is true, this is the most wonderful news to mankind we will ever hear. If there's some way to get a piece of this action, who wouldn't want to be a part of it if it's true? How can I know it's true? Well, that's what this passage is all about today. Jesus gives us four witnesses who were there, who saw, who touched, who heard. He's giving us the evidence, eyewitness evidence. We believe lots of things based on eyewitness verification, and we accept them unquestioningly. Before 1826, there were no photographs, no film but we accept written evidence from eyewitness history from then. In fact, we accept history from thousands of years ago as factual, with far less evidence than we have for the gospel. So John produces four lots of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection in this record of history from John 20. He gives us Mary Magdalene, then Peter and John, or the other way around really, ten of the disciples at once, and finally Thomas. So we're going to have a look at that. Let's pray first and ask for God's help. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that this historic, wonderful event is recorded and attested to with all the evidence we need to believe. Lord, help me to be faithful to your passage today. Open our ears and eyes and minds and hearts to be be in wonder at what has happened, at what Jesus has done. That he's over-conquered death, he's heralded in eternal life to all who repent and believe and trust in him as Lord and Saviour. Yeah, fill us with a zeal and joy in that at what has happened and, and a, a massive realization of the enormity of this and what it means, what it can mean for all and for everyone who comes to Christ. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first witness John introduces us to today is Mary Magdalene. We don't know a lot about Mary Magdalene. She's hardly mentioned before. One of the few other references to her is in Mark 16, where it says that Jesus drove seven demons out of her. So today, people would say this woman has a history of mental illness. Under Jewish law, the testimony of a woman was invalid. She's a really strange choice, on all these levels, to have as the first person to report on the empty tomb and the risen Jesus. So why does John have her here? The answer is simple, because she was. Because of that, her being a witness to us has added authenticity. This is not who John would have chosen as the first witness, but it's here because it's true. So Mary heads off while it's still dark, She finds the tomb empty, and she runs and tells Peter and John, and uh, she says to them, someone has removed the body of the Lord from the tomb. Peter and John run to the tomb to see for themselves. John arrives first. He looks in and sees the strips of linen that had bound Jesus' body, um, but he doesn't go in. Then Peter arrives, goes straight into the tomb, and then he can see not just the strips of linen that were around jesus body but also the burial cloth that would have been around jesus head john then follows him in and uh, we're told that when he sees he sees what peter saw and sees and he believes and from verse 9 we know it's not just that he believes the body has gone that mary has said he believes jesus has risen from the dead now There's lots of theories about what John saw that generated that faith. Um, Clearly, it was not until he entered the tomb that he could see the head covering, and there was something about the head covering, the head cloth, that caused John to believe that Jesus had not been removed. He'd risen from the dead. The passage doesn't tell us what that was, but it was enough to convince John. Uh, So John and Peter are the first to believe, but verse 9 tells us, They still didn't understand from Scripture what was happening. Um, They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They haven't understood how all that has happened is exactly how God has planned, and this is how we will bring salvation to the world. But keep that in mind, because Jesus is going to deal with that problem shortly. So Peter and John are our first witnesses to believe. We'll move on to our second one, Mary Magdalene. So Peter and John head home. But Mary stays at the tomb and she's crying. She still believes that the body has been stolen or removed. And then two angels appear. And they one of them says to her, woman, why are you crying? Um, and Mary tells them why, that someone's taken the Lord. Then Jesus appears. Now, Mary doesn't recognise him. Like, it's still only just daylight and she's been crying but Jesus asked at first the same question the angels have asked. He, he says, woman, why are you crying? Um, she's got it wrong. She shouldn't be crying. Uh, this is not an occasion for grief. She's soon going to realise this is an occasion for joy. <laughs> and when Jesus says her name and he says Mary, she immediately recognises him and calls out, Rabboni. Re- um, and then Jesus says these things to her. He says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, it may be that Mary had, Mary had clung to Jesus, but Mary no doubt thinks that Jesus is back and things are going to continue on as they did before. And Jesus is explaining, no, that's that's not the case. He's not here to stay. He's returning to his father as he said he would. He's going back to where he came from. But he goes on to say these really beautiful words. First, he refers to his disciples as his brothers. Do you know that's the first time in the Bible that Jesus calls his disciples brothers? They've become fellow children of God. The relationship has changed. They're made clean and acceptable to God by the cleansing power of the cross. And he calls God my father and your father. Now, in the Old Testament, God is called father at times, usually sometimes in a prophetic sense um, or as the father of Israel, but never in a personal, intimate father-child way. Uh, when Jesus claimed that close personal relationship as a son with, with God, a son with Father God, the Jews were really upset by it. They called it blasphemy. But Jesus has opened the door and the promise of John 1:12 is fulfilled. It says, "For all who received him to those who believed in His name, he gave the right to become children of God. That has now happened. That right is claimed now for all who believe Jesus is God the Son and that he has risen from the dead. So Jesus' death and resurrection has changed relationships between man and God forever. And Mary now is the second second witness that believes Jesus has risen. Our next lot are the ten, well really the eight, because Peter and John have already believed, but he appears to them. So Mary runs off, tells the disciples the news that Jesus has risen and what he has said. And this same day, that same Sunday that Jesus risen, that evening, the disciples are hiding in a locked room, it says, for fear of the Jews, when Jesus appeared and stood among them. Now, the fact that the doors were locked obviously indicates that they were genuinely afraid. But it also tells us that there's something about Jesus' resurrection body that's different from his pre-crucifixion body. Um, he can now pass, just, as he can pass through grave clothes, he can pass through locked walls and doors. Um, but we don't know exactly what that is, but it's enough to say it's different, but uh, he's genuinely resurrected. You can touch, he can speak, you can see him, he can eat. So Jesus' first words to the disciples are, Peace be with you. Now, back uh, in 1427, Jesus had promised this peace to his disciples. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Now, that just seems to fly in the face of what he says in John 16, 33, where he says, In this world, you're going to have trouble. That doesn't sound like peace. But the peace that Jesus brings, the peace that Jesus gives is a peace between man and God, a new peace, an eternal peace that removes the barrier of sin and it opens the way for a relationship, a relationship of peace and love forever. All the teaching of the Bible on peace, uh, shalom in, in Hebrew, has comes to fruition here in the Gospel. In fact, all the promises, all the prophecies, they're all going click, 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 click and falling into place. After he said this, Jesus showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed at seeing the Lord. Again, fulfilling what Jesus had promised them in John 16, he said, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn. While the world rejoices, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now, we have some difficult verses here. Um, Jesus now gives some instructions to them in 21 to 23. Again, Jesus said, "'Peace be with you. "'As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Uh, "'With that he breathed on them and said, "'Receive the Holy Spirit. "'If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. "'If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven.'" Now, these verses have been seriously misused over the years. They've been taken out of context, so we need to look at them carefully. Is this when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit? Surely that happens at Pentecost uh, in 40-odd or forty odd days' time, or a bit longer actually, but in Acts 2. And didn't Jesus say to them, until I go to return to the Father, the Holy Spirit will not come? He hasn't returned yet does it fly in the face of Jesus' later instruction at his ascension, uh, which is in 40 days' time, he tells the disciples, go wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes with power. And, And if this is the giving of the Holy Spirit, that's to be poured out in the last days as promised in Joel 2, well, compared to what happens in Acts 2, it's a pretty weak outpouring. In Acts 2 we see the disciples come out of hiding. They preach publicly and thousands come to faith in Jesus. So there was a clue I mentioned to what this was all about back in verse 9. They did not understand from Scripture what was happening here. Now, if we look in Luke 24 at verse 46, it records the same events, this same evening, the same events. But there it says in verse 46 then Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. See, the Holy Spirit has always been around. He's an eternal being. And God has used the Holy Spirit to reveal his word to people for thousands of years since the creation of the world. And that is the receiving that is happening here. But that pouring out of the spirit that Jesus promises will happen and he's promised in Joel. That happens after he returns to the Father, and that happens at Pentecost. Again, in the next verse, we need to be careful how we understand it. Taken on its own, we could read it and think the disciples have power in their own right to just forgive sins or not forgive them. The problem with that interpretation is we never see the apostles doing that in the Bible. Right through the New Testament, the apostles declare that repentance and faith in Jesus is what removes sin. Some religions will claim from this verse that their uh, their clergy have the capacity to forgive sin, to give absolution for sin. Um, Their priest may claim to act as a mediator between man and God, yet they ignore other scriptures like 1 Timothy 2, which says that there is only one mediator between man and God, The man Jesus Christ. I want to illustrate it to you. I want you to imagine for a minute you're having a conversation with a non-Christian, someone who is seeking to know the truth about God and how to come in a relationship with him. Hopefully you have many of these conversations. You tell them the gospel. You tell them the free gift available to all who repent and trust in the risen Jesus. Now, if they turn to you and say, I believe, I repent, and they ask Jesus into their life as Lord, you can say to them with confidence, your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus has promised everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. They may reject the message and say, this is not for me, I just can't accept this. Well, you know that their sins are not forgiven yet. They, but they, We don't make eternal judgments, but they need to come to repentance to have their sins forgiven. Now, this reference to forgiving sins or withholding forgiveness sounds stern, it sounds harsh, but it is simply the result of the preaching of the gospel, which brings people either to repentance as they hear of the ready forgiveness of God in Christ or leaves them unresponsive to the gospel so they are left Unforgiven in their sins verse 21 I'm going backwards here verse 21 as the father sent me I'm sending you obviously not with the same mission Jesus achieves salvation the apostles are the witnesses to the salvation we announce that salvation as we live and tell the gospel but but have confidence we are sent by Jesus but we're different to the apostles. They had a unique role. Jesus tells them in John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Those spirit-inspired words from the apostles are given to us in the Bible. That is finished. That's done. So as Jesus is sent by the Father, the apostles are sent by Jesus and they establish the church uh, and the church is to continue telling the good news until Jesus returns. So that's our third group: the uh, the ten or the eight that hadn't yet believed, come to believe when they meet the risen Christ. Our final witness <clears throat> to the resurrected resurrected Jesus is Thomas. So Thomas wasn't with the other ten disciples uh, when Jesus appeared that first Sunday morning. And when he is told about it, he refuses to believe. Uh, he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas has been living and travelling with these ten men for three years, and yet he doesn't believe what they tell him. That's that's pretty sad. But I'm pleased he didn't, because what happened next... Uh, causes causes Thomas to make one of the greatest and clearest declarations from the Bible in history. Uh, So the next Sunday, they're locked in a room again, but this time Thomas is with them. Jesus appears and again says, "'Peace be with you.' He then, then said to Thomas, "'Put your finger here, see my hands, "'reach out your hand and put it into my side. "'Stop doubting and believe.'" And Thomas now declares to Jesus and to the world, my Lord and my God. If anyone comes to you and says that Jesus isn't God, you can take them to this verse. It's not only crystal clear that Thomas is saying here Jesus is God, but Jesus accepts it. He doesn't rebuke him. Jesus accepts the title and in fact says that those in the future who believe what Thomas has just said, those who believe without seeing are blessed. That's you. Blessed are those who have, who have not seen and yet have believed. That's Lake Mac. That's everyone today who trusts in Jesus. That's John's purpose in writing this gospel. In verse 31 he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Isn't it amazing the change that Jesus' resurrection has brought about? At the end of last chapter, we had Jesus dead and in a tomb. Here, at the end of chapter two, we have Jesus back to life, death conquered. The gift of resurrected life eternal is now a free gift to all who believe. I've only got a couple of points of application. The first one is that we are we are witnesses. We are gospel witnesses. We have the eyewitness evidence to the resurrection here in John, plus many others. There are 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his bodily ascension into heaven. And in verse 30, John says that during those 40 days, Jesus did many other signs and appearances. Paul records that Jesus appeared many times over those 40 days to many people to over 500 at just one time alone. In verse 31, John is saying, we have all the evidence we need to believe. And these witnesses, they didn't come from a position of some kind of mental delusion, seeing just what they wanted to see. In fact, the opposite. They all started off rejecting the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead. It was only Jesus physically appearing to them that convinced them to believe. And such was their belief that 11 of those disciples went to their death still claiming that Jesus was the Son of God and he rose from the dead. That's conviction. Why would they do that? Why would Christians around the world still do that? Because the promise of joy and life in Christ eternal far outweighs the transient life and pleasures of this world. If you're a Christian, you have accepted the evidence. You are now called to live out and tell out your Christian faith. My second point is the message. We have a message, and it is Jesus. Other religions are based on moral teaching or religious observance. Christianity is based on a person. Jesus, fully God and fully man. When I was a very new Christian 30-odd years ago, I started going to church and there was a lovely godly lady in our church. Um, She was was a very quiet and unassuming lady, but she was, without a doubt, the church evangelist. She was regularly bringing people to church and she was having conversations with non-Christians, people I knew who told me And I asked her one day, what's the secret that when talking to people, how to have this meaningful conversation that you seem to have all the time? And she said to me, don't get sidetracked. Our message is not telling people they need to stop drinking or stop swearing. It's not even about evolution and creation. Our message is Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. They need to come to him Jesus has paid for sin on the cross. He's risen from the dead. For anyone to be saved, that is what they have to accept. We need to not hide or be embarrassed by Jesus. We need to tell people about him. We have the good news of new life, a certain hope, a free gift, and it's all of grace through faith in Jesus. Benjamin Franklin coined that phrase I used earlier, nothing is certain except death and taxes. But here in the resurrection of Jesus, Christians believe that death is not the end. We have an eternity of life and joy in communion with the living God. This is the greatest message ever told. We need no longer live in the shadow of death. What a message of hope. If it's true, it is true. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, if the resurrection is not true, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. The whole purpose of this passage in John today, he is providing us with eyewitness evidence to that truth. Jesus rose from the dead. As Christians, we believe that he has risen, he reigns, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. We need to embrace that truth. We have the message of certain hope, the only hope to a world that is doomed and headed for certain destruction. Let's not be half-hearted about it. You've been called from death to life to be a witness for Jesus. Take hold of the opportunities that come your way. Pray for opportunities. Be a godly witness and stick to the message, Jesus. Let's pray, dear Lord. Lord, uh, thank you, thank you for this eyewitness evidence you provide. Thank you that uh, so many millions of people, billions, have accepted this message and believed in in Jesus. That he is the risen God. That he reigns in heaven, and that he will return. We do have the message of hope that can save people, Lord. Uh, Lord, we just pray here at Lake Mac, use us, Lord, to call people out of darkness, to be your witnesses. Empower us to live godly lives that that reflect the gospel to people. Uh, Lord, pray, give us words to say when the opportunity comes. Help us to know the truth and to have the courage and the boldness to, to speak it out, to challenge, to change, to bring glory to you in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. If anyone had a question. it's not a, Oh yes, sorry, Kay. Kay, just in front of you, Alice. I'm not promising I can answer it.
0: When Jesus told Mary Magdalene not to hold on to him.
1: Well, well Kay, I can't. Make my play to pull your mask down for a sec. Oh, okay. It's just a bit muffled.
0: When um, Jesus told Mary Magdalene not to hold on to him because he hasn't ascended yet. Um, would this have been the case with everyone? Could would, would no one have been able to touch him?
1: I'm not sure that she was even touching him. I, I, I've read several commentaries. They just say what Jesus is really saying is, like you can, he might be just saying, you can't keep me. I'm not, I'm not back like I was before. I've, I'm, I'm on my way to the Father. This is a transition. So I think that's the point he's making. Oh. Yeah, he could, she could have, you know, be clutch, clutch, grabbing at him as well, but uh, certainly he can be touched, like, because he invites the disciples to touch him. He has a body. It's a really interesting thing, though. Like, the Bible doesn't explain, but clearly Jesus' resurrection body is different to his pre-death body. A lot of people don't recognise him initially till he speaks or breaks bread or does something to, to open their eyes. And, um, yeah, so... I think that's that's yeah. the way the commentaries go that I've read. I don't know if... Don't no, that's
0: know. fine. I, I took hold on to you, literally, as in hold on to Well, you. it
1: could be. I think it could be. But I think the point Jesus is making, yeah. I'm not back the way I was. This That's changed. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm now on my way. I'm ascending to the Father. Mm-hmm. I think the more interesting points there, just the change in terminology, he now calls the disciples brothers my father and your father. There's a, an intimate relationship now with God. It's just such a beautiful thing in his next, his next statement. Mm.
0: Thank you. Any idea why the two angels were there for Mary Magdalene's second arrival at the tomb? And they, Sorry, uh, what why? The, the two angels were in the tomb when Mary Magdalene came the second time. Mm-hmm. They weren't there for Peter and John.
1: Oh, there's all sorts of uh, in the commentaries that the two angels represent the cherubim in the ark. I didn't go there. There's an I, I don't know. There's an interesting play on Mary and Eve. sorry Eve. Um, I don't, I'm not really answering your question. I didn't go. There's so many ways you could go with the passage, but where the commentators go into depth, saying like Eve is is going from joy to grief as as a refusal, you know, as as sin uh, leads to. death to death, where here Jesus' obedience is leading to life and Mary's going from grief to joy, um, there's that comparison. But as far as the angels, yeah, I, I don't know that why, I, I can't, I don't know, Ben, do you know why the angels appear? <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> I don't know that I can an- answer it. There's some interesting, as I say, in the commentaries there's all sorts of side issues you could go off on, which i I. I I was trying to avoid having to address, but thanks for that anyway, Alan. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I don't know the answer.
0: I don't know either the reason why um, why the angels came when Jesus was born, uh, except to proclaim to say something. Yeah, well, that's I think what... this is quite a significant mm. situation too. Mm. Um, yes, and there's a question back here, and while I walk as well. Um, with, with the clinging to Jesus, it's really noticeable in those 40 days that did, Jesus didn't camp out with the disciples like he did for the previous three years. They would have really noticed that. He came, uh, did things, said things, and then disappeared and then reappeared. Mm. And I think that's significant with what happened with Mary. Yeah, thanks for that, that sermon, Alan. Just a question on the, the passage that refers to the disciples forgiving people and that. And I totally agree with, with what you said
1: in the way, so I thought it was, it was really good. But it is one of those passages where as you just read through by yourself at home, you kind of read through it and you go, it does kind of seem to, just on, on face value, feel like it is kind of saying that uh, the disciples now have the authority to forgive sins themselves, I guess. Is there any kind of advice around when we do read passages like that, that on their face seem to be saying something quite out there? How do you pull up those red flags and go, oh, is this actually what it means? And how do you determine like, oh, the face value kind of might seem like that, but you need to dig deeper to get the understanding, if that that question makes sense. That's a a great question. Um, I hope I can do it justice. I think let the Bible interpret the Bible. Um, look and see, like one of the things as you look through the Bible is we don't see the apostles taking that authority that they have the power in themselves to forgive sin. So, yeah, go through the Bible and, and if a verse jumps out that seems out of place, see how it plays out, look for other references. Um, I think that's the way, to, that other verse, to give you an example, uh, an easier example, the one about he pours out the Holy Spirit, I didn't really, that didn't click, I actually... I read the same account in Luke where it says he opened their eyes to scripture and then I rang Rob and I said I've got i I'm thinking that's exactly what's happened here and Rob said sounds like it to me and yeah so that was really uh really helpful yeah talk to guys that you know I think it's good to talk to Rob and Liam with those things but I think that's the best the best advice I can give is there are I I went to a preaching conference once Ben will know the guy a fellow Jonathan Dykes do you know Anyway, he did a preaching conference at Narrabri out in central New South Wales and he said when you preach on a passage, often there is a verse in there that's quite cryptic and hard to understand and there's a real temptation to jump that verse and not address it. Don't do that because when you find out what that verse really means, search the Bible, it'll bring the the whole meaning of the, the passage often to life. And he gave us a couple of examples and they were... They were astounding the way it worked when he when he showed us he, exactly what he said a verse that I would have jumped over because I didn't understand it, but when he uh, when he uh, opened it up and we looked around the Bible and understood what it meant, it really opened up the meaning of the passage. So I would encourage le- allowing the Bible to to uh, explain itself, search elsewhere, and you can easily see things and think well that it can't mean that because we don't see that happening anywhere. They don't claim that authority. That's That's how I'd go with it anyway, but thanks for the question.